Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. How are you, Kieran? I'm good. We're, we're having to record this on Tuesday night because I'm commuting to Liverpool and back on Wednesday, as well as doing a full day's teaching. Uh, and that's in that's in the middle of Storm, Kieran. And I just <laughs> hope my mother doesn't see how Storm, Kieran, is spelt because when I was born, uh, I was supposed to be, yeah, my dad was supposed to go to the registry office and spell my name the Gaelic way, which would have been C-I-A-R-A-N. He went to the Two Eagles, got absolutely shit-faced, then staggered along to the uh, registry office, couldn't remember how to spell it, and, and that's how it's spelled <laughs> the way that it is, much to the annoyance of my mother for the last 60-odd years. But she'll be so proud, Kieran. If, if she doesn't see it written down, it'd be fine because she'll be at home in the old country listening on the radio, that Storm Kieran, and she say, finally, they've recognised my son. They've named a storm after him. Um, <laughs> Razor Ruddock tells a story, uh, and I, I hope it's true, that he, his daughter, one of his daughters is uh, called Pebbles, and everyone grew up calling her Pebbles, thinking that... It was a lovely nickname, and it turned out that Razor had actually put pebbles down on her birth certificate. Right. So, and his, it, it, she was 16 before he had the courage to tell his wife that, no, officially her name was Pebbles. She was a, applying for her first passport. Um, <laughs> I hope that's a good I hope that's a true story. Um, yeah, so we're recording on Tuesday, Kieran. It's, it's Halloween, so yeah, we're, we're middle-aged men, so you might hear strange bumps and noises anyway, because yes. that's, what happens when, that's what happens when we get out of a chair. Um, but being Halloween, I'm a. This may sound a little bit trite, Kieran, but I'm afraid it's um, it, it's it's news day and it's all trick and no treat for Reading fans at the moment, isn't it? It is. Um, I've been getting a series of messages coming throughout the day. There has been some talk, I think, on Sky of uh, an impending risk of administration of the club. Uh, the wages have been paid. I've, I've had that confirmed from sources in Reading, which I think is one good thing. Um, and on Sunday, uh, Mike Ashley's helicopter appeared in the car park or pretty close to the select, the select leasing stadium or, or the Majeski, as, as it's more properly known. Um, so that has start, uh, started the, uh, the tongues are wagging in terms of could... Mike Ashley acquire the club and I think uh, he will be a safe pair of hands if that is the case because he won't overspend he, he he won't spend anything on the stadium as we saw what happened at Newcastle over the period of his tenure uh, but I, th- I think he could certainly deal with some of the outstanding issues the biggest challenge would be will Dai Yong be willing to sell the club at what will be a substantial loss because he's not going to get his money back. Um, and if that isn't the case, then from some of the messages that I've been receiving from, again, fairly reliable people as far as I'm concerned, that uh, Reading desperately need to find millions very, very quickly. Failure to do, failure of that has, has got to increase the 
possibility of administration. And people are saying, well, what are the consequences of administration? The EFL and its members don't want that to happen. So you've got an immediate 12-point penalty. This is on top of an owner who's already generated 16 uh, points being deducted to date. Uh, you've then got that awkward issue of, once again, we have a football club where the stadium has been separated from the club because Dai Young has sold the stadium to himself, another company. And we saw in relation to the Derby County administration that the person who owns the stadium is able to exert an awful lot of influence over what then happens with regards to the ultimate ownership of the club. So I don't think that's good news. Um, William Storey, who uh, I think it's fair to say yeah, I had a bit of a spat with a few weeks ago, he he is still in the hinterlands. Um, yeah, we, we've invited him onto the show. Uh, you know, and, we, and this isn't going to be a, a Mickey take or anything. You know, if he's got something to say, then we, I think we've got a duty to, to listen, even though I'm a huge sceptic uh, in relation to, to his funding. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a mess. And they, they've also been subject to a transfer embargo because of yeah, failure to pay HMRC on time. Whether HMRC have been paid this month and the wages you know, have, we know the wages have been paid. That's an uncertainty. HMRC are under pressure from central government to collect money, and, and you know, and that's they do on, on behalf of us as taxpayers. So, you know, that's that's a further, uh, it's a further just added straw to the, uh, the the continual problems at that club, with respect to an owner who who doesn't know what they're doing. And and that's you know I I, I know I use this phrase you know, idiot or arsehole. Um he is an idiot in the sense that he doesn't understand the industry, but in my experience the problem with idiots is that there's always people there to take advantage of them, and and this has been the case. And if if Reading had got promoted to the Premier League in the early years of his ownership, he'd, he'd be a hero. But you know those those are the fine margins that exist within football. Uh, in in true South London uh, slash Manchester style, at your instigation, producer guy did get in touch with William Story's people to say virtually what you said. If you look, mate, if you've got something to say, say it to our face. And bizarrely, William Story's people went all right, and let's see if we can sort a date out, which is which is great. But I almost hope he does buy Reading because that will give us a proper excuse to talk to him. Otherwise, we're just talking to a vague ZZ Top lookalike about how his life's getting on. But uh, I'm not a Reading fan, so it's easy for me to be flippant about it. It seems to me, though, Kieran, given the the options that face Reading in terms of potential new owner and in terms of potential administration, then Mike Ashley, for once, really is a knight in shining armour. But how much would you think he'd be looking to pay for Reading at the moment? And how much short of what Dai Young paid for it would that be? Well, Mike Ashley has never overpaid for anything. You know, the right. reason why he's a success is that he has historically identified distressed or underperforming brand. Yeah, and, and we, well, yeah, you, you laugh about going to Sports Direct and you'll get Donne. Yeah, I, I associate Donne with Bjorn Borg from yeah. the nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah. uh, I associate Slazenger, you know, with with that era as well, and, and all of those types of brands that uh, Mike Ashley acquired which he, he's made money on. Um, 
as far as Reading are concerned, at the wrong end of League One, if he's, if, especially if he's going to be buying this club via an administrator, um, and it's coming without the stadium, you'll be you'll be lucky to get you know ten million pounds for it because what exactly really? are you? You're buying the name now. And my other concern would be is why would the administrators take on this job? Because the first thing that they're looking to do is to ensure that they get paid themselves. And with no guarantee of cash coming in, if if Dai Yonga doesn't have money himself, then the stadium's not in play because it's owned by a separate company. Um, it, it just looks very, very messy. So if I was Mike Cashley, and I'm, I'm not, and uh, I have no desire to be, um, I'd, I'd offer a very, very low fee with a step up should the club be promoted to A, the championship, and B, the Premier League. Um, and you know, in, and incentivised and, and a a contingent set of payments, because at least that means that the present owner doesn't have to go and find the money which is due to HMRC and doesn't have to go and pay next week's or next month's wage bill with with money he probably doesn't have. If Mike Ashley's business model, Kieran, is to identify failing brands and make them successful, I think Reading fans would bite your hand off for that, wouldn't they? Yes, yeah, he, I, I, yeah, we've we've said in the yeah the unfit and improper persons book, you know, we, we we've spoken about Mike Ashley and we said sustainable, yes, profitable, yes, ambitious, no, will cut things to the bone. You know, no investment in infrastructure, uh, no attempt to to grow the commercial part of the club. But he clearly still feels he is unfinished business as far as football is concerned, because I think there were very strong rumours that he was trying to buy Derby County. But again, the issues with you know, Mel Morris still owning the stadium, whatever reason, Mel Morris appeared to some sort of beef with the prospect of actually acquiring the club, um, is that he, he, he has significant amounts of money. He's got over half a billion pounds sitting in a bank account. Uh, of his company mash holding so he's he's got the resources to certainly get reading out of league one and then it comes down to making good decisions on the football side of the business because if luton can do it if huddersfield can do it if palace can do it if brighton can do it you know we've got you know a litany of clubs who have who have managed to get to the premier league by being a bit smarter than then potentially, you know, Reading can re-establish themselves. You know, I think the the championship is, you know, this isn't being patronising to Reading. The pan, the championship is is where you would mentally think that Reading would be, and then if they have a you know a good season on the pitch, get into the playoffs, they got a chance of going up. Yeah, the only downside for Reading fans, I guess, is that they, they might have to put up with Steve Bruce as manager for six months. But once they get over that hiccup, I'm sure they'll be delighted. We have two. Big FIFA stories, Kieran, um, but I've insisted that we deal with them at different ends of the podcast because the second one, <laughs> Infantino's Scooby-Doo-style hymn of praise to the Swiss police, is such a ludicrous story that I want to give it a bit of breathing space at the end. Uh, the first one, though, Kieran, is it seems like, by default, we know where the 2034 Men's World Cup is going to be held. Uh, yes, the phrase, no shit, Sherlock. Uh, comes to mind with regards to this. You know, it's 
it's it's not even trying to manipulate things. It's it's just in plain sight these days that the 2030 World Cup, as far as uh, stitching up Africa, South America, and Europe to mean that that's in such a way that they couldn't bid for the 2034 competition. You then had Central and North America taking host of the 2026 World Cup. That meant that we were only left with Asia and Oceania. Um, there was talk about of a, a some sort of combined bid from Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, and then the Asian Football Federation said, no, we're back in Saudi Arabia. We're not even going to look at what you've got to offer. Um, and then Australia were told, oh, by the way, uh, you've got to have your bid in for the 2034 World Cup. We're going to give you three weeks to put together uh, a, a a statement of intent. And Australia, who who very much got their fingers burned in 2022 because they felt that they had a good case, uh, yeah, they ended up getting one vote in the uh, unusual voting patterns that took place, which ended up awarding uh, the the 2022 FIFA World Cup to Qatar, because apparently that was going to accelerate interest in football domestically in Qatar. I can't recall anybody mentioning football in Qatar since the end of the World Cup. So um, it is going to go to Saudi Arabia. It's it, it's a, it's a done deal. Uh, it just needs to be formally rubber stamped. Um, should should that area be given the opportunity to host World Cup? Absolutely. Um, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But this is just so political. Um, it's so manipulated. It sort of leaves you just feeling a bit depressed. Um, it's going to be a Winter World Cup. Now, that's going to disrupt things domestically in Europe. But again, I, I don't actually have an issue with that in its own right. Because why should... Uh, you know, the European season dictate what happens elsewhere. In terms of the number of stadiums, I think FIFA are reducing the number of stadiums that are required for the tournament um, in order to reduce the sort of the infrastructure obligations uh, in, in Saudi Arabia itself. So it does appear to be a very cosy deal for all of the parties involved. Yeah, we'll be talking about this in more detail in a week or so, Kieran, once the... The uh, deal has been confirmed, um, and obviously already human rights groups are are very agitated. Um, there's there's not much point getting into it while it's still conjecture. But one good thing is at least it'll be a short commute for Gianni Infantino from his current uh, low tax zone home, should we put it that way? Um, <laughs> Sheffield Wednesday, Kieran. I don't. Just when you think. There can't be a. It's like watching East Enders. You think there can't be a new. It's like it's like a really bleak house, Kieran. You think there can't be a new plot twist in this, and then, God love him, it's almost almost comical, Kieran. Which I can say again. I'm not a Reading fan. I'm not a Sheffield Wednesday fan, so I could use words like comical. If I was a Sheffield Wednesday fan, Kieran, I, I'd I'd just be so furious about what's happening there, and also the owners. Very clever scheme as to who should perhaps be coughing up the money to save the club. Yes. Um, so Sheffield Wednesday are also subject to a transfer embargo by the EFL, once again for non-payment of taxes, to HMRC. 
And we spoke in the last week or two with regards to Delphon Chancery acting like a spoilt Victorian child uh, and saying that if you criticise me, or as you've been criticising me, I'm going to turn the taps off this club. And uh, I, I actually received a message from a Sheffield Wednesday fan, and it it was a very emotional message. It was about somebody who has suffered loss in his family. And yeah, we've always said, we, we, we say these things and people, yeah, and perhaps they sound too glib, that sometimes fo- your football club's the only thing you've got. And, and it's the only thing that you've got to look forward to. And, uh, you know, this person, you know, and, and he knows who he is. And, and, you know, we're sending you all our love and support as much as we can and, you know, via, you know, communication means. Uh, it's been through a really tough time. And, you know, the, the, the fear of losing that one thing that you've got left, that piece of identity, that, that escape from the drudgery of life in 2023. And it is drudgery and it is really tough for people. Um, Delphon Chansiri has now... Yeah, just just being a smart ass, saying, "Well, yeah, we we need we need a couple of million quid." Um, so therefore, twenty thousand fans. You know, if if I'm such a crap owner, um, and you could do a better job, I want a hundred quid from twenty thousand fans um, as a loan. I'll repay it with interest. And I'm going. You're talking utter crap, mate. You are you are an absolute disgrace. You have no understanding of what it is to be an L. You've got no understanding of what it is to to stand in those in those terraces and those you know to sit in those seats and to have been there since the age of six or seven, and you know you, you'll be there to your dying day as a Sheffield Wednesday fan. So I'm um, this absolutely patronising comment. What he's trying to do, so I suspect the money will probably be found from somewhere. Is he's just trying to take the pressure off himself? He's trying to make himself look good. The guy's a narcissist. Um, the, I, 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 you know, he, he's a, it's a, it's a horrible thing to do because there are people who cannot afford to put the lights on. There are people that are, are having to not eat in order to feed their kids, and he's. You know, he comes from a ridiculously wealthy background. The only reason why he was able to buy the football club was because daddy gave him the money to do so. And he comes from a life of privilege and he's insulting and patronising the fans of Sheffield Wednesday. Um, people will say, well, can't the EFL step in and do something about this? Well, but they can't because the owners and directors test says, have you got the money to be an owner? Yes, he has. But you can't say, are you going to be a complete arse? And, and, and act in in a manner, manner which is not befitting of somebody who's supposed to be the custodian of a fine and proud tradition and a fine and proud city. You took the words out of my mouth, Kieran, because you, you used the phrase no understanding. He simply has no understanding of how much £100 is to a lot of, to the majority of Sheffield Wednesday fans, the majority of fans of most clubs. And also... In a bizarre sort of way, and I'm sure this is deliberate. It's also shifting the blame to the fans. It's all. It's all. It's almost saying, "Not enough of you gave me a hundred quid to raise this two million quid. So if we're going out of business, it's because it's down to you." And and that's there will be people who buy into that, and that's just shameful, as you said, Kim. Utterly shameful. Yes, and he is the person that signed off on the contracts he's the person who sacked the manager he's the person who approved the budget it wasn't the fans 
So to to blame the fans for the predicament of the club at present is a complete dereliction of his duty as as a club owner. Um, it, it's an embarrassment. I, I think I, I can I can only imagine other club owners saying, you know, he's got nothing to do with us, you know, because we we had that interview with Andy Holt a week ago, which again, Andy's, you know, we we know Andy's he wears his heart on his sleeve. He's a very emotional guy. And you, you could see the hurt he was going through because he does love the club and he does want to be, you know, he, he refers to himself as a custodian and he wants to leave a legacy of having an Accrington Stanley, which is better than the one he inherited and that people can be proud of. And, you know, and, you know we'll be honest, we, we've performed on, on stage there and it was absolutely brilliant. And it's all down to somebody who gets what it is to be a club owner who's at the other end of the scale to Delphron Chancery. I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. In one direction, Kieran, uh, Crystal Palace FC, I'm my closest football club, thank the Lord. But in another direction, I've got AFC Wimbledon not far away. And just beyond that, I've got Sutton and United. Um, I like Sutton as a town. It, it has one of the best maintained Witherspoons I've ever been into, which I know is damning with the faintest of praise. But I could I can recommend the, the Sutton Town Centre Witherspoons. And just two seasons ago, Kieran, Sutton United was a fantastic news story. It was a, a, a really well-respected non-league club finally getting into the league, having a really good first season. And it's gone both tits up and pear-shaped at the moment, hasn't it? Yes. Um, they're at the bottom of League Two. They uh, they paid probably around about half a million pounds to to rip up the the artificial pitch to make bring it into line with um, EFL requirements. And you know, that's a cost of doing business, although you can see... There are negatives as well as positives from that. Um, the EFL do publish uh, an embargo list. Um, and you know, I'm sure the vast majority of people have got far better things than their time to, to check uh, <laughs> when it's being updated. Um, the vast majority of people, Kieran. The vast yes. majority, not, which, which not, of course, not all of them. <laughs> definition excludes me. Um, and this is, this is a funny one because they've, they've been added to the transfer embargo once again for non-payment of uh, taxes. Um, I was at a meeting on Monday night uh, and I met a couple of club owners and a couple of players and so on at something. And one of the owners was saying that the the biggest challenge is that on a month-by-month basis, the thing which keeps him awake at night is how am I going to pay the end of, uh, you know, the end of month payroll costs or or HMRC. And if you... I'm not saying this is right or wrong, 
if you if there's one that you're not going to pay, it's probably going to be HMRC because the yeah, prospect yeah. of of not paying the staff um, has you know repercussions on an individual basis that you know, on an individual level that you wouldn't want to go through. But it's it, it's still a cause for concern, and you know, I suspect there'll be suddenly United fans and people at the club themselves saying, "Was it worth it?" You know, because I think there's a fair chance that they're going to get relegated. Uh, appreciate it's early doors as far as the season is concerned, uh, but they've now got financial challenges to deal with as well. Again, we we've discussed this before with other club owners as well as in our book. Having to rip that pitch up when they got promoted is a huge uh, hit on their income, isn't it? And, yeah. and you 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 wonder whether if they go down, they then got a massive decision to make. Do they respend the money on? reinstalling a new plastic pitch for income or do they go all out to get promoted again and and don't do that so it's non-football people or just or fans who don't know business i.e me don't fully appreciate all the ramifications of a relegation do they well it, it is it's one of those it's a classic damned if you do and damned if you don't scenario that they will get parachute payments uh, should the club be relegated um, it costs them somewhere in the region of half a million pounds to to not just rip up the old pitch, but also to to lay down a, a grass pitch, which is was the the requisite standard for for the EFL. Um, we've seen in Scotland in the Scottish Premiership where uh, they do have artificial pitches. They are a they are a success financially. Um, they they come in for criticism from managers of opposing clubs. Um, so, you know, where the technology is, uh, you know, you and I both remember Luton and Oldham, where it was like football on a trampoline. And I think things have improved significantly since then. Uh, but, you know, the, the idea of, a, of an artificial pitch is that, A, it's a revenue earner, and B, it establishes the club to a greater extent as, as a focal hub of the of the town, because you'll get kids, you'll get old men like me playing walking football because you know, the idea of playing walking football on the pitch of the local club is quite an attractive proposition. And then you go for a pint and a couple of drinks you know, or a couple of pies or whatever after and it's it's additional money for the club. So uh, you, you've got to feel for Sutton because getting to the EFL was a hell of an achievement and it, it's now seemed to be backfiring on them. It, it does make you wonder though, Kieran, if, if, if you wafer are happy for... Champions League games to take place on an artificial pitch. It doesn't make you wonder why the EFL aren't happy with it happening in their league. Just in terms of HMRC, Kieran, um, many people, not just in my industry, freelance people, have taken advantage of the fact that HMRC would rather take tax payments by instalments than not take anything at all. Would that be extended to to a football club? You know, if, if Sutton, for example, were to contact HMRC, and there's a huge HMRC office in Sutton, as it happens, would HMRC say, "All right, you owe us this much money. We'll take it at three thousand pound a month," or is it not something they would risk with when the numbers are that big? No, they they are pragmatic. They would rather that somebody is proactive and comes to them and says, well, "I'm behind." This is the plan. Uh, this is uh, this is the payment schedule. Can we agree on it? And and then they will monitor that um, because it's not in HMRC's interest for 
them to have to incur legal costs, them to have to in, to to commence legal proceedings and winding up orders because that's money which is effectively leaving the system. Um, and then if companies are wound up, then you've got no staff being paid. If the staff aren't being paid, you've got no PAYE and NI on those staff. So I think there is there, there are practical and pragmatic ways of dealing with this. Um, I've always found when dealing with HMRC, you know, when I used to be in an insolvency practice, again, you, you, treat, you treat people with respect and you get that back in turn. Um, don't, t- don't take the mickey and they won't take the mickey out of you. It's always been my view. Mm. Oh, I'm always very polite. I mean, when they say we're sorry to keep you waiting, I say, that's that's fine. I understand how busy you are. Thank you for talking to me in the first place. How's your day going? As well, Ali's eyebrows go up and down in the corner thinking he's been very polite. It must be HMRC. Um, Chelsea, Kieran, there's a historical financial investigation into Chelsea, but it's not into a matter that many people would assume. Yes. Um, and all I can say with regards to this is there is potentially more to come in relation to this, but I'm not in a position to say any more than that. Um, But what we have seen, this was a story which was, uh, I think it was broken by The Times, uh, Martin Martin Siegler and and his friends who who do a pretty good investigative job. Um, This is to do with the signings of of William and uh, Samuel Eto'o going back to 2013, which was, of course, the Roman Abramovich regime. And at Chelsea had been losing quite a bit of money. We were in the early days of financial fair play and sort of the application of those rules. Um, Chelsea also were concerned that there was a new kid on the block in those days in the shape of Manchester City, who had just won the Premier League for the first time. So Chelsea wanted to be competitive. They were therefore trying to make some statement signings. And, you know, some of, some of the calibre of Samuel Leto is, you know, pretty big statement. Uh, and Williams always, I've always sort of, one of those Brazilian players that just make the game look effortless. Um, but there appear to be a, a series of payments which have been made to third parties, have been made to companies. Uh, in the British Virgin Islands, have been made perhaps to relatives of players, um, which have not directly necessarily gone through the books of Chelsea at the time. And these payments have been discovered as part of the due diligence procedure undertaken by Clear Lake Capital and Todd Bowley. Now, I'll be honest, playbook of any corporate takeover is that you spend your first six to 12 months trying to find reasons to blame things which have gone wrong on the previous <laughs> management. Okay, that that's, right. that is standard process because you see it time in, time out. But this is clearly going back a, a significant amount of time. Um, why, if this has taken place, would it have taken place? I suspect it was because Chelsea were very close to breaking either the UEFA or more like, or the uh, Premier League financial fair play limits. And one way of doing that is is to keep costs out of the accounts. You know, it's uh, yeah for anybody that ever watched The Sopranos. You know, cash jobs are uh, are, are a way of of, of dealing with things, um, and. 
where this money has come from and how it was being paid, and it didn't appear to be recorded necessarily appropriately in the books, um, is is a cause for concern. Um, Chelsea have reported themselves to the Premier League. The logic behind doing that is is the same as you know, if you do turn yourself in, uh, in, in respect of a crime, then potentially you're going to get a a lower sentence. And we certainly saw that in respect of Birmingham City when they realised that they'd signed a player and had broken you know, unwittingly financial fair play rules. They reported themselves to the EFL in what, 2018, 2019. And as a result of that, they, they had a reduction in terms of the points deduction. So is this uh, the, the Chelsea approach? That would appear to be the case. Um, will there be charges? We'll have to wait and see. What is the likely sanction to be? My view is that if you give football clubs in the Premier League a financial penalty for misdemeanours, then that's going to, for some owners, they say, well, it's just a cost of doing business. You know, we're, we're, we're richer than God, so therefore giving us a financial fine isn't going to act as a deterrent. So it has to be a points deduction if the numbers involved are significant. The fact that it was taken undertaken by a previous regime um, is to a large extent an irrelevance. It's, it's Chelsea Football Club who ultimately you know, were involved in these transactions. Back in the day, Kieran, when I was thrown out of university for, um, I can't remember now, I think for being too handsome, I believe is what they said at the time, I ended up working for my girlfriend's dad. It was a, so I was a builder's assistant for a, a year and I got paid cash Plus, I got the scrap metal. I've, I've, I've never been richer, and I, I never got bothered by HMRC. They, I, I went right under the radar, and I, I probably shouldn't have said that in case one of them starts looking back several decades and goes, "Hang on a second. I, I, th- I think you're saved by the statute of limitations there. Oh, very good. Yeah, I'm not sure. There's, I suppose all the scrap metal is a benefit in kind. And the price, <laughs> yes. of, the price of copper in those days. Um, without rehearsing all the moral and um, legal arguments about gambling, Kieran, because we have spoken about it a lot recently. Can we just confirm what's happened to Sandro Tonali um, at Newcastle um, following the revelations of his gambling on football matches? Yeah, he has been banned from all football competition for 10 months, so that means he's going to miss the rest of the, the Premier League season. He will also not be able to represent Italy in the Euro 2024 championships. And people have contacted me and other people and said, well, where does this leave Newcastle um, in terms of their finances, which we're a finance show, so that's sort of our focus. Do they have a case against Milan with regards to this? Um, The answer is highly unlikely, unless they can prove that um, Milan deliberately failed to communicate knowledge of uh, Tomali's gambling issues. Um, where does it leave them with the player? Could they uh, could they withdraw his wages? Well, they could do so, but I think that would be counterproductive. A, you've got an unhappy player. B, effectively, the club is in breach of contract, so the player is free to find employment elsewhere. And if you've not just paid £60 million for a player or you know, a high fee... Um, you're not going to get any of that back. So um, it's uh, it, it's it's a loss for the club. It's a loss for the country. Newcastle fans are 
Uh, I think they they feel that there should be some form of compensation. But as we've said before, you know, the, the nature of the the disease is that it's invisible um, until it's too late. Yeah, and you, he's, uh, he's broken all the regulations. He's it seems that he's gambled on his own side at times. We know we know the reason why these rules are in place, but you can't help but feel heartbroken for the a young man who can't do what he's presumably loves doing for for ten months. Um, after Man United's, I think, shall we say, insipid performance, Kieran against Man City on Sunday. Many pundits across the sky and across the sky, across Sky and BBC, pointed out how much United have paid um, on players in the past ten years. This is an eye-opening sum of money, but it seems that some of it, Kieran, hasn't been paid. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, and I was actually asked for a series of numbers by by a former Manchester United right back. Um, oh, do tell. Yeah. Well, he's yeah, yeah, young, young, young Gary, as as he is known. He he, he wanted uh, so I'm more than happy to supply any professional footballer with with uh, with details. But he's uh, well, unless it's your pin number, Kieran. Obviously, what what what, <laughs> yes. what, what numbers were what, what numbers was Gary Neville asking for, Kieran? Um, the total amount of debt, the oh, total well. amount of uh, transfer debt, the total amount that's been spent, uh, and not and as you implying not spent. Manchester United have published their 2022-23 accounts and it shows the highest amount of revenue ever generated by a Premier League club in the history of the competition. Wow. And yet they were still lo- they ended up losing 400 grand a week. Wow. And you ask yourself, if Manchester United, who arguably are you know, one of the top three brands it's a horrible word, but top three brands yeah, in terms yeah. of global followers in the game, if they cannot turn a profit, either there's a problem at the club or there's a problem in the industry. And I think there's an element of both with regards to that. Um, have Manchester United been spending money? Yes, they've spent somewhere, since Sir Alex Ferguson retired, they've spent somewhere close to, I think, £1.65 billion pounds in respect of transfer fees. And when Sir Alex retired, um, they owed other clubs thirty-four million pounds in outstanding transfers. Because when you do a deal, it's done on instalments. That figure of thirty-four million pounds is now somewhere in the region of three hundred million. So wow. it looks as if the Glazers have been using the Manchester United credit card um, as a as a means of acquiring players. <clears throat> this isn't a football show, but you know I, I know plenty of United fans. You know, I played cricket for Trafford, as I said, on many occasions. I've got many mates still back in Manchester. I lived there for a long time, um, and it's the same thing. I say, show wh- where's the money gone? You know, show me, show me a successful. Player. Yeah, even the one I always shout out, which is Bruno Fernandez. He, he's a player who plays when he's in the right mood. Um, you know, which is again not not a particularly good reflection. Um, so we then come back to the issue of the ownership. Um, is there any way that an alternative ownership could do things better? Well, first of all, they could put money into the club, which would count towards financial fair play. Um, I've also put together some, some numbers 
um, looking at player sales and Manchester United. If we if we talk about you know the so-called big six from player sales, Manchester United over the course of the last ten years um, have generated a quarter of a billion pounds less than Manchester City, than Arsenal, than Spurs, and uh, Liverpool, and they've generated over half a billion pounds less from player sales than Chelsea. So those numbers, to me, looking at it from a business point of view, are indicative of an organisation that doesn't know what it's doing in terms of talent trading. Mm. I, I like it when Gary Neville gets indignant about a player because his voice goes up an octave. And by the end of that game on Sunday, talking about mini, uh, uh, talking about Bruno Fernandes, I, I think only Findlay and the other dogs in the neighbourhood <laughs> could actually hear him. It's just he was so cross when he called him a con artist. It's like, oh, go on, go. Now, Kieran, we we turn. Uh, I'm pleased to say, to one of your favourite subjects. So if you'd like to pull up your high horse and get aboard, and we can talk about Derby County's administrators. Yes. Uh, remember, these are the, <coughs> the quantum are, are the people who recommended as their preferred bidder for Derby County Football Club, uh, Chris Kirchner. Yeah. Um, who... Tire kicker extraordinaire. <laughs> yes. Who, who is presently keeping the FBI fully occupied with regards <laughs> to his behaviour in relation to the company that he, he ran. Uh, he's not been seen in Derby uh, for a long period of time. Um, but the administrators have said, Core, Derby County, that was a tough job. Oh, that was took a far more time than it should have done. And I'm thinking, look, yeah, it, it's many years since I, I you know, practiced as an accountant and worked in, worked in the insolvency industry. I'm looking at it, and to me, it's actually not that difficult a job because you've got a good brand that you're selling. You've got, you know, to a certain extent, guaranteed revenues. Um, and they had agreed when they first took on the job that they were going to charge $1.65 billion so one point six five million pounds um, for their work, but they're now saying, "Oh, well, you know, it, it's you know when you you've got something wrong with the house and you get a plumber, and and they suck in their teeth and they go, you know, that, that's looking a bit dodgy." Uh, they've now said, "Well, we have to go and charge you an extra three hundred and fifty grand." Um, so that takes us to two million. On top of that, you've got their advisors' fees, you know, legal team, uh, surveyors, valuers, and so on, which probably takes us you know, the thick end of another million or so. Um, it's proven to be a very, very expensive exercise, Derby County going into administration, as well as the fact that it costs the taxpayer £20 million. It costs the unsecured creditors a lot of money as well. Um and if you then start to look at some of the expenses being claimed by the Derby County administrators, the amount of money being spent on accommodation and travel and so on, uh, big numbers, big numbers, Kevin. 
Yeah, I, I, I like the fact that the, the word you chose for the Derby County administrators to use is core. Because I, I like the fact that Sid James may be in charge at Quantum. Core! Cool. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Cool. Um, because I looked so uh, young and sweet when I was a builder's assistant, it used to be my job to go in and say to people, God, blimey, who put this, who put this in? This is all going to have to come out. Uh, until we got rumbled one day by a little old lady where your governor did. Like, oh, okay. um, now, th- there's been a lot of fuss, Kieran, about the idea of a Christmas Eve football game and Chelsea Supporters Trust in particular are, I think, understandably angry and are looking to meet with the Premier League about this. Yes, um, and as well as Chelsea now having a fixture on Christmas Eve, um, Rangers fixture at Motherwell has also been scheduled by the broadcasters for that day. Uh, And people will say, well, hold on, you know, Scotland has sort of a slightly different approach to public holidays and historically matches have taken place on Christmas Eve, perhaps normally being on a Saturday. You know, this is is on a Sunday. And again, the change is being made a couple of months. Yeah, people have always started to make their Christmas plans. Of course. Um, But Chelsea Chelsea Supporters Trust, who, who... do represent, I think, the interests of their fans very eloquently and uh, very in a very measured way. Um, they are saying, yeah, quite rightly, why is why is this taking place? Where where is the demand coming from for the for the match to be uh, switched? And the the broadcasters generate about sixty percent of all of the income that is made by Premier League football clubs. And therefore, the broadcasters are calling the tune. Um, they will have done their sums. They will have said, well, actually, you know, what are people doing on a Sunday afternoon? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not looking at this from a fan's point of view. I'm trying to look at it from the, the point of view of Sky. They will say, we think we can actually get good viewing figures for this. And under the terms of the agreement with the Premier League, we're entitled to request a change of fixture. Um, <clears throat> it's it's not fair on the fans, but the fans will still turn up. The fans of Wolves and the fans of Chelsea will turn up because we have this love affair with the game. But you could, you know, it, we said it before. It, time times it, it's, 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 times are really tough for so many people, and actually. Being with your family, just the people that you love and who love you, uh, is probably never been more important than it is at present. And this is making it more difficult. And it's not just the fans who are having to, you know, change their priorities. And you know, for Chelsea fans, you won't be able to get a train back, so therefore you have to use some alternative means. It, you know, Wolves are going to have all of their staff having to come in, and you know, from the catering staff point of view, you need to be in, you know, eleven o'clock. It, it just seems unnecessary. And it's a shame because, you know, you and I are both huge fans of Sky, uh, you know, in terms of the quality of, of their product. And, and why are they doing this? Well, also, Kieran, why are they choosing Wolves-Chelsea? I, 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 and, and that's no disrespect to either team. I, I, it, if Liverpool-Everton were first and second in the table... And they were playing on Christmas Eve. You could almost understand it. I understand the broadcaster saying, well, it's not actually a public holiday, which is true. But as you said, trains stop early on Christmas Eve, no matter what day it is. 
uh, it's just uh, I'd be interested to see how many people do turn up, Kieran. I think this might be one of those occasions where the fans say enough. And also, it's interesting. I've, I've read people at the Premier League pointing out quite correctly that well, until 1996, games were still played on Christmas Eve uh, on occasions. Until the mid 60s, games were played on Christmas Day, but the world has changed. The world is a different place now, Kieran. And it's you've you've hit the nail on the head. It's unnecessary. No one, no one's. Caught, there's no clamour. Boxing Day is the day we all, every football fan loves. Boxing Day. That's one of the best days of the year. You, you, you pray for a home fixture on Boxing Day because it's that's a. It just feels right somehow. It's you know, and normally it's a it's a local derby or as close as you can get. So you're you're out and you're back at home in in sort of three to four hours. Everyone's in a good mood. But this just seems designed to annoy everybody. And I can't see I, – I won't be sitting down to – I love – you know I love Christmas. I'm a big yeah, kid about yeah, Christmas. I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very sentimental about Christmas. I know what I want to be doing on Christmas Eve, and mostly it involves wrapping presents, singing carols, drinking Baileys. I don't particularly want to watch – I don't. I wouldn't want to watch Palace on Christmas Eve, let alone – Chelsea Wolves. So, I'm I'm genuinely hoping that that's a it's a quarter empty stadium. As but as you say, the nature of football in this country, uh, it's it, it, I mean Pep Guardiola alluded to it when he talked about the the City and United fans coming together to to celebrate Bobby Charlton on 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 Sunday. I mean he talked about the astonishing nature of English football fans, and you know part of me. As much as I hope it's going to be empty, part of me probably agrees with you that it won't. Um, let's move on, Kieran, to another another of your favourite stories. Uh, talking of Christmas, which is a time of, of of belief and also fantasy, brings us to the financial statements of Juventus, which I think mix some of the some of the fantasy and imagination of Christmas with belief. Kieran, in in a way, for you, Juventus financial statements are Christmas. Well, they would be, uh, except they're being filed under fiction uh, this this particular year. Um, So as people are aware, the the board of Juventus uh, Football Club have have resigned. The club has been subject to points deductions with regards to wages. And now it looks as if the... Uh, the Italian inspectorate, for want of a better word, they they said, well, if there's a few things wrong, perhaps we'll take an even closer look. And now I think there's a, a complete uh, lack of confidence in the numbers um, and in the, the the application of the rules. And you know, an accountant's like rules, I can assure you, Kevin. You know, if there's one thing that an accountant likes, it's a, it's a thick textbook and, Ooh, and, and subsections to follow. Um so if this is the case, it could mean that there has been further misrepresentation of profits, which means that potentially we could be looking at issues to do with breaking UEFA uh, financial fair play rules and Juventus who are, who are looking to get you know, back into significant competitions. Uh, and by that, they, you know, they just mean the Champions League. They're not interested in the Europa League or the, or the conference. Um, I think this is going to prove to be more of a challenge for them than they would have liked. Uh, our penultimate story, Kian, is about Leon. Um, and as a Palace fan, well, I get slightly twitchy every time Leon is mentioned. All Palace fans are like it, given Texter's 
involvement. It's it's a little bit like the alarm clock inside the crocodile in Peter Pan. Uh, that's a good old shake there, isn't it? <laughs> that's what it yes. was. No, we did a big stretch. That was a big old stretch, wasn't it? It's a little bit like the alarm clock in that Peter Pan crocodile. It sort of it, it, it doesn't like it. What's he got against Peter Pan? It, it, no, he doesn't like John Texter. Oh, good boy. Well, that's a good dog. Um, it, it, every time we hear Leon mentioned, it seems to get closer to us and it impacts on us. Um, so I don't like this next story, Kieran. Tell me about it. Yes. Um, Leon have had an unsuccessful year financially. They've lost $99 million. Um, it now appears that Texter is saying... I need to start raising some cash. And for somebody who initially, I think Palace fans and Leon fans and other fans within the uh, the, the multi-club ownership model felt that the one thing he wasn't sure of cash, yeah. why is he now going to the bond market? He's talking of borrowing up to $300 million. He's also talking about uh, listing on the New York Stock Exchange to try to raise more money. And I'm going, well, hold on. When I last checked, Leon was in France. So yeah. why is he going to the New York Stock Exchange? Yeah. Uh, is it he feels that he can, you know, persuade investors over there on the back of Ted Lasso and and welcome to Wrexham that European football was a good place to invest? Um, yeah, these these are a, an increased number of red flags because every story you are hearing these days connected to John Texter is one which seems to indicate that he's not necessarily as benevolent an investor as uh, one would have wanted to believe when he first became involved with the club. Yeah. I might ask you, Kieran, for a future news pod, just to have a little delve into his holdings at, at Palace, because no one's entirely sure. I know you've, you've got a full work schedule, Kieran, and I know, don't tell the Baroness it was me that asked you, but there is there is a lot of confusion amongst Palace fans as to exactly how... The club ownership is divvied up, if you like, and exactly what Texter's money was meant to be going for in the first place. Because when he first came in, it was very clear that his his investment was for infrastructure, and it's becoming increasingly clear week after week that that doesn't seem to be happening. So, if you could have a look at that, Kieran, I'd be I'd be happy. And and also, let's move on to our last story, Kieran, which uh, a statement from G, Gianni Infantino, which was of such mind-blowing, egotistical performance. I think even Donald Trump would have said, you know what, mate, you might want to go back and rewrite that. It was just astonishing, this statement, Kieran, wasn't it? It was, it was, yeah, and the fact that it came from FIFA. It, it, um, seemed, to, it seemed to come from him. It seemed to well, be him that wrote it himself. Yes, absolutely, certainly. Um, the people not familiar with what's been happening, the, the Swiss authorities investigated Gianni Infantino with regards to meetings that he had with a senior Swiss official, um, which were not recorded, and these were to do with financial affairs, and both men said, yes, okay, we we accept that the meetings took place, um, but neither of us can remember what happened. You know, it, it's a bit like... Uh, you know, the government uh, civil servants who can't remember why they've chosen to put disappearing messages on one particular <laughs> WhatsApp group. Um, oh, wasn't, and... that, wasn't that fun today, Kieran? 
It, it, it was coming out live on Five Live. Yeah, it was hilarious. Listen, uh, it, my, it was my favourite tweet of the day. Someone said, will you please stop apologising for the bad language because I can't hear what comes next. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we digress, Kieran. Back to the... Um, yes. <laughs> back to this um, extraordinary statement. So, as, as a result, the Swiss authorities who you know, do like a degree of scrutiny, they... they they tried to get to the bottom of this. And because of the failing memory of both Gianni Infantino and the Swiss prosecutor um, who had these meetings, um, have had to close the matter. Because not that they're saying nothing's happened, but you know, trying to get evidence of a, of a verbal conversation where there's been a, uh, a memory lapse on behalf of both parties it has, has proven to be impossible. But the level of triumphalism in, in this, yeah, you know, I, I thought that Infantino could not surpass himself with his "Today I feel a woman." Today I feel a, uh, I am a, uh, I'm a migrant worker making the stadiums in Qatar and so on. Um, it's it's funny, but it's also concerning because narcissists do not make good decision makers. And we have somebody who is becoming increasingly erratic in terms of their behaviour. And, and yes, we're seeing this on a much broader level in, in society in terms of people in power. Um, but football is so important to us that the fact that the person in charge is coming out with this type of nonsense, I, I think, diminishes the, the legitimacy of FIFA as an organisation and it diminishes football as the love of our life apart from the people in the life that we love. Yeah. I I like I liked his constant reference to old FIFA. This yes. that's old FIFA. I am I am new FIFA. It's a really, you could almost hear the Schwarzenegger accent. I am new FIFA. And also the, the, the constant reference to and this should have been the song that Tom Robinson wrote that the Swiss police are the best in the world. So he kept saying, "No one investigate. No one investigates better than the Swiss authorities. These are the top investigating authorities in the world, and they realise that I am new FIFA. I'm not old FIFA. It's an ast- I urge you to listen. It's an astonishing statement. Um, and on that note, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to join them or make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that is what that would be very kind of you. It also get you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes." And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash price of football. There's another Price of Football live show coming up. We'll be at the Royal Yacht at Jersey on November the 7th, which is a week from now. You can go to the same website, Price of Football, to get tickets. There's a couple left. You can also, at that website, get our new book, Unfit and Improper Persons, which is also available in all good bookshops and some rubbish ones. If you want a Price of Football t-shirt, you can also go to that website, priceoffootball.com. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, go to the same place and send us an email, um, questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Monday with our usual questions pod. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, we've been doing this podcast for four years, and I think it's fair to say we've had plenty of chats off air. And we've got to know each other. And despite our differences in terms of football clubs, we've got to know each other. Or so I thought. 
Now this morning we were we had an interview, uh, an interview which of a show that's going out on Friday, where Kevin Day revealed that his hobby is flower arranging. Well, what happened? I've, to... I've got it back. You've kept that from me, Kevin. It has to be said. What happened to Chatham House rules? <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, uh, you, you're. <laughs> I love flower arranging. Uh, yes, I I can't draw or paint, but I love colour. And it, it it started when we got married, and we had lots of. I, I'm, I'm going to front this out, Kieran. I've, you, yeah, you're right. I mean, but, I've but, given but you, the I've, grief you've given me I, for the last know, four yeah, years for being I bourgeois. I know, I know. Hang on a second. Working class people can work with flowers. Maguire. <laughs> what working class people can eat quinoa? Yeah, no, you're right. I can't. Yeah. You're right. I'm giving it to you today. I'll have I'll forgotten the rules by next time we meet. But you actually, even as I said it today, I can't even remember the context it came up in. But it was off air, Kieran. But you're right. Even as I said it, I thought, oh my god, I've, I've, he's got a bargaining chip now, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I'll, I'll do you. I'll do you some flowers. I love. I do. I generally love. I did. Um, the flowers for a mate's wedding a couple of years back, and it was the happiest. Wow, it's the best present I could give him, really. So, no, I, I, no it's fantastic. I, yeah, no. Fan- anything creative, I've got nothing but admiration for it's it's that, that's what do you know. What I get into my own little world just for a you know, just for an hour or so every couple of weeks, put a bit of music on. If it's winter, so much the better. If it's raining, and I just I, I you can't talk to me when I'm doing it, I'm just so absorbed. I, yeah, yeah, this is we're going to get so many tweets about this. Aren't we? <laughs> Carry on. Who would you rather like to see the pod hosted by? Let's cut to that bit. <laughs> well, I'd like to see it posted by Kevin Day and Monty Dobb. <laughs> I think I think the price of flowers is it, it, it is a niche market. <laughs> Don't get me started on the price of flowers. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the